As we've studied the book of Proverbs the last several weeks, we've spoken frequently about God's wisdom. I'm accustomed to praising Him for His great wisdom. It's jarring, therefore, when we read of God's foolishness, God's senselessness. Of course, it's only in a manner of speaking that Paul can rhetorically speak of the foolishness of God, only in a context of comparison to the best of human wisdom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That our only wise God, as Paul praises him in Romans 16.27, could be described as foolish, strikes us as odd at best and blasphemous at worst, a paradox that would maybe bleed over into contradiction if not for the rhetorical context. There are at least a couple of ways in which God's actions to save sinners don't seem to line up with the wisdom of Proverbs. You're going to want to hold on to both ends of your rubber band this morning if you haven't thought about this. Let go of either end of this tension that I'm about to show you and you will lose the gospel entirely. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and who, he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to Yahweh. Thus, God's wisdom teaches judges to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Wicked, foolish judges justify the wicked. Wicked, foolish judges condemn the righteous. Both kinds of judges make God sick. He hates them. What does God, the divine judge, do, though? In Romans 4, 5, Paul describes God as him who justifies the ungodly. Has God become an abomination to himself? God justifies the wicked. Is God a foolish judge? Or take Proverbs twenty two twenty six: Be not one of those who give pledges who put up security for debts. We'll talk more about this and what it means from our passage this morning in Proverbs 6, but the command is straightforward here. Wise people don't put themselves or their resources forward to serve as collateral for someone else's debts. Fools endanger themselves financially by agreeing to secure other people's debts, especially when their creditworthiness is in question. Jesus is referred to as the guarantor of a better covenant in Hebrews 7.22. The King James Version has the word surety. The idea is that Jesus has presented himself as security for the covenant relationship between sinners and God. As one commentator explains it, Jesus has underwritten and made himself answerable for the fulfillment of the covenant, not only from the side of God, but also from the side of his people, acting as their representative. His people, a bad risk if ever there was one, but he, an unfailing surety. How is God assured that we sinners will keep our end of the relationship? Jesus has pledged himself as a guarantee. Does that make Jesus a fool, according to Proverbs twenty-two twenty-six? God himself 
sent Jesus to be the surety for our sin debt. He gave his own life as a pledge to cover the sin debt that we could never pay. This is the senselessness of God. Truly, it is only fools who see what God has done to accomplish salvation as foolishness. Indeed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jesus, giving his precious blood on the cross was not a foolish act of securing other people's debts, for his precious blood was of sufficient value to cover the debt. He would not be impoverished by giving up his life. This act accomplished the forgiveness of all our trespasses because through the cross, as Paul says in Colossians 2.14, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Of course, only Jesus could do that. And because he did that, God is no fool for justifying the ungodly. He justly justifies the unjust because their sin debt has been paid in full and indeed canceled. Thus we see God can act in ways that appear foolish and would be foolish for us, even in the less significant realm of our human interpersonal relationships. This morning we're going to consider the slippery slope of slothful sleep. Are you going to say that five times fast this afternoon? I'd like us to consider Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19 as a kind of downward progression, a slide. And it begins with Solomon warning his son and us readers about the danger of putting up security for others. He does so as though his son has already gotten himself into this kind of foolish trouble. And so he begins by advising his son what to do. Let's look at Proverbs 6, verses 1 to 5. Solomon's son is being addressed as a kind of a speculator in these verses. I'm using that term with its technical financial meaning. Speculation in this sense, according to dictionary.com, refers to engagement in business transactions involving considerable risk, but offering the chance of large gains, especially trading in commodities, stocks, etc., in the hope of profit from changes in the market price. We'll see how this definition generally applies to what's being described. But let's read the verses. Proverbs 6, 1 to 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. It is a bit difficult to pin down exactly what kind of situation Solomon has in mind here. Commentators pitch different scenarios that might fit. He seems concerned about the danger of his son taking financial responsibility for other people's endeavors. However, the language of giving a pledge, which is literally striking the hands suggests making some kind of financial agreement. And the language of putting up security involves presenting collateral in the context of a loan or putting a down payment on an investment. But if we put the emphasis on verse 2, 
The repetition of the son's words probably carries a connotation of hastiness or rashness. Many students of Scripture detect the neighbor or stranger seeking to draw Solomon's son into a kind of get-rich-quick scheme, or what we might call a speculative venture. This may apply to co-signing loans in our day. However, legally, we cannot follow Solomon's counsel when it comes to co-signing loans. So I'm not sure applying this passage in that way is quite on target. Other Proverbs do advise against such a practice in general. More specifically, Solomon sees his son as having put himself in a situation where he is going to be ruined financially. Taking responsibility for someone else's debts or pledging your resources for a shady deal allows the other person to take control of your life and your future. Hence, he strongly urges his son to get out of the agreement. The word translated hasten in verse 3 probably depicts the image of groveling in the dirt and letting the other guy trample on you, or alternatively, trampling on yourself. It is a picture of humbling yourself or letting yourself be humiliated. That's how important it is to get out of a bad deal like this. Let yourself look like a fool because, well, you were a fool to get into such a situation in the first place. Then in verse 4, Solomon increases the urgency, commanding him to refuse to let himself sleep before he begins badgering the one he's bound himself to. And in verse 5, he compares him to an animal that's been trapped, which will desperately and aggressively fight to escape. Notice that Solomon doesn't blame the other guy. He wants his son to take responsibility for his foolishness. But he's not simply telling his son that he's just supposed to take the consequences. The wiser course of action in this case is to eat crow, swallow your pride, tuck your tail between your legs, and beg for mercy. With the doubled command to avoid sleep in verse 4, Solomon presses home the urgency of the situation. If his son doesn't take this seriously, he might find himself needing the rebuke of the sluggard. That comes in verses 6 to 11. Thus, the speculator who doesn't escape his plight because he doesn't act with urgency slides downward to become the sluggard. In this case, Solomon gives his son some further humiliating advice. Look at verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard is a repeated target of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Commentator Trimper Longman writes, Proverbs is intolerant of lazy people. They are considered the epitome of folly. Indeed, the sage is at his most sarcastically comedic when it comes to the lazy person. Here, Solomon is not necessarily calling his son a sluggard, but he is warning him that if he doesn't get off his behind and deal with his problem, he will face ruin. Thus, he seeks to get his son's attention here. 
The command is threefold in verse 6. He must go outside, get down on his hands and knees, and take a close look at the ant, and thereby become wise. It might be important that Solomon chooses to refer to the female ant, so that the son is pressed to learn this lesson from a girl who works harder than he does. But in any case, if he goes out and engages in a deep study of the ant, he may yet become wise and therefore escape from his financial danger. But if the son proves to be a sluggard, obeying that first command to go may prove significantly unlikely. But if he won't go, then he won't see the ant and he won't become wise. Sloth or laziness is rooted in pride. Proverbs 26.16 makes this clear. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Solomon thus commands a humbling exercise to bring proper repentance. What can the sluggard learn from the tiny ant? First, verse 7 indicates she is self-motivated. She takes responsibility for herself and doesn't need anyone to tell her what to do. She just does what is necessary to care for herself and for her fellow ants. Second, in the first part of verse 8, she is a hard worker. Throughout Proverbs, the opposite of the sluggard is the diligent person. For example, Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The ant can certainly be described as diligent, and the rich supply of ants is their food. Ants work hard, and they work smart, and they work together. All of that is foreign to the lazy sluggard. Proverbs 21.25 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. It's not that the sluggard can't work. He refuses to chooses not to, would rather stay in bed. Finally, back in Proverbs 6, 8, the ant is preparing for the future. She prepares food during the summer that she might store for the fall, harvest time, when she'll be busy gathering even more. At least one particular kind of ant known in the Middle East is known for storing grain or wheat stalks in their nests for future consumption. God's people are called to work hard to be hard workers who keep their wise eyes looking ahead to the future. What we can learn from the ants, we also learn more profoundly from our Savior. Jesus said in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He worked so hard and so consistently that his enemies accused him of breaking the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. And he defended his ongoing, constant, hard work in John 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Commentator David Hubbard writes, Hard work ought to be the normal routine of us who serve a carpenter Christ, who follow the lead of a tentmaker, apostle, and who call ourselves children of a Father who is still working. As Paul teaches in Ephesians 2.10, God saved us to work for good works. Paul presented his own example to the Thessalonian Christians, how he and his companions worked night and day in order to pay for their own meals so that they wouldn't burden unnecessarily the church there. 
He calls them to imitate his example of diligent labor, and he reminds them of a command he had given them earlier in person. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Solomon essentially tells us that the sluggard won't work even in order to eat. Proverbs 19.24 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The ant doesn't live like this. The ant works hard to provide for herself and for her fellow ants, and she does so ahead of time. Commentator John Kitchen writes, Foolishness only labors when the stomach growls. Wisdom labors because it knows the stomach will growl. The lesson to be learned from the ant for Solomon's son and for us is to express the necessary effort to get out of a financial jam after he's overcommitted himself. We can extend the application of this more broadly, however. The ant teaches us to save some of our income to prepare for future needs. We may anticipate, we must anticipate, the day our car will need new tires, the day we might lose our job, the need for repairs to our home, and we must wisely work and save ahead of time to prepare for those eventualities. This can be very difficult to put into practice. A family's income in today's economy might be tight, barely covering expenses, Solomon is not here prohibiting asking for financial assistance when needed, whether that be through government programs or from the church or both. Instead, he's addressing the issue of someone who has gotten into financial difficulty because of their folly, because of their overspending, because of their taking financial losses, because of foolish investments. And he particularly has set his target on those who refuse to put forth the effort of which they are completely capable in order to work toward financial stability. After presenting the sluggard with an opportunity to learn from the ant, Solomon expresses the frustration of a parent whose child refuses to respond. The rhetorical questions in verse 9 certainly must be expressions of frustration and agitation. And then in verse 10, Solomon likely puts words in the sluggard's mouth. The New American Standard Bible appropriately has quotes around the words of verse 10. The sluggard responds to the father's command to go learn from the ant with these groggy words. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Just five minutes more. Uh, Just catching some Z's, man. Chill out. I... Just want a little more rest, and then I'll be ready to get out there and get to work. Just a little more. Earlier, Solomon raised the issue of his son being caught or ensnared by his own words. And here, he seems to quote some words that reveal the sluggard's complacency. Words that reflect his imprisoned heart. The sluggard loves his sleep. As Proverbs 26.14 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. This is not depicting the tossing and turning of an anxious heart. This is a picture of the person who awakens in the morning, seeing the sunlight peeking through the blinds, and then turns over and covers their head to avoid acknowledging that it's time to get up and to get busy. Proverbs 20.13 commands us, Do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with food. And we dare not read this like a promise, 
And we have to recognize that this isn't, this isn't all that needs to be said. The warning is against loving sleep so much that you never want to get out of bed and go to work. That will result in poverty. And just opening your eyes, of course, doesn't result in you magically having enough food in your refrigerator. Not only do you actually have to go to the store and buy groceries, but you also actually have to go to work to earn income that you can then spend at the grocery store. The sluggard needs to get out of bed and get to work. In verse 11, Solomon gives a quick retort to the sluggard's desire for a little more sleep. Solomon says, if you stay in bed much longer, poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. For the person who would rather sleep than face the world, the person who sleeps to escape, this is the alarm clock seeking to wake you up. This is the loud, annoying noise that can't help but jar you from the deepest sleep, causing you not merely to slowly put one foot down on the floor and then the other. No, this warning is meant to jerk us awake violently so that we leap out of bed and slam our hand down on the alarm clock. Our nerves are so rattled and our heart racing so fast that we couldn't go back to sleep if we wanted to. A similar warning appears in Proverbs 19.15. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. The love of sleep tends toward more sleep, a deep sleep, an unnatural sleep, a sleep that might even be considered judgment from the Lord. This particular word for deep sleep is used a few times to refer to a supernatural sleep caused by God. Think of God putting Adam to sleep in order to form Eve from Adam's own body. Or God putting Abram to sleep for the unique covenant ceremony in Genesis 15. These aren't acts of judgment, but they are God-induced episodes of sleep. And it may take on a connotation of judgment here because of the wickedness and folly of slothfulness. With regard to sleep in general... It is presented to us in the scriptures as a sweet gift of God. However, in this case, it is indeed possible to have too much of a good thing. So beware of using sleep as a means of escape from problems. While a good night's normal sleep can do wonders for clearing one's head to be better able to deal with problems, I think most of us probably know the difference between sleeping in order to get needed rest to prepare us to deal with the difficulties of life and sleeping in order to avoid dealing with the difficulties of life. Solomon personifies poverty in verse 11 as a robber. The New American Standard Bible has the word vagabond, and this is probably better. I wonder what image comes to mind when you hear the word vagabond. The idea Solomon seems to be presenting is the idea of a drifter who decides to barge into your home looking for lodging. He's homeless and needy, but he's lost the sense of social propriety to ask for help. Instead, his desperation has driven him to break in and seek to satisfy his needs temporarily before he moves on to the next place. Poverty, thus, strikes the sluggard unexpectedly. The sluggard won't see it coming. That's because he's been asleep for too long. While he was sleeping, an unwelcome invader has come in and made himself at home. 
That's exactly the picture I think Solomon's painting here. While you're asleep in your bed for days on end, too lazy to get up and even go to the kitchen to feed yourself, as you're wasting away in your lazy isolation, a drifter has been watching your house, and it seems vacant and empty. So, eventually, he decides he can bust in and make himself at home. All the while, you, the sluggard, are asleep in the back bedroom. One writer observes that at least 14 separate proverbs in Scripture connect idleness directly with poverty. Laziness is not the only cause of poverty, but it is a major one. But the natural consequence is actually an outworking of God's judgment. We need to think carefully about this. God's wisdom is embedded within creation so that there is a natural order to things. Now... Because of the fall, and also because of God's common grace, the system doesn't always work the way it's designed to work and the way we would expect it to work. However, the biblical connection between idleness and poverty reflects God's design. Hunger and lack are designed by God to spur us on to work, to motivate people to work. Indeed, Proverbs 16, 26 says, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Hunger is supposed to be, designed by God to be, a powerful motivator to get people to work. Thus, when we disrupt that by enabling a sluggard to continue in their laziness, we're actually subverting God's purposes. His built-in mechanism for motivating people to work can be wrongfully removed by us in our well-meaning attempts to be kind. For example, as biblical counselor Jim Neuheiser suggests, parents who give their young adult children food and shelter without requiring them to work are confirming them in their sluggardliness. That's not loving them. Likewise, as a church, we are to be guided by Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He's talking about fellow church members in particular. He's talking about those who claim to be Christians, and he insists that we must not enable people to continue in their sin of laziness. If the reason for their poverty or their hunger is sinful laziness, and it isn't always. But when it is, Paul says that they should not be allowed to act as parasites, draining the body of Christ of its resources. When we do allow that to happen, we support the sluggard becoming a thief. It is a kind of theft when people who are capable of working to provide for themselves choose not to, refuse to work, and instead ask for others who do work to provide for themselves and their own families to also provide for them. Solomon continues and escalates the imagery of poverty depicted as a vagabond drifter to deprivation as an armed man. He depicts want, lack, deprivation as a home invader armed with a shield to protect himself. The phrase literally translates, a man of a shield. Deprivation is equipped to defend itself 
but the sluggard is not. The sluggard is depicted as completely helpless, not that he'd be bothered to get out of bed to defend his home anyway. Again, Solomon is using the imagery to violently shake us awake to the dangers of laziness. The slippery slope dips so low here. An additional implied lesson from the ant can be brought out here. I've mentioned it a couple of times in passing, but I want to briefly draw this out. Laziness is not merely rooted in pride. It's also an expression of self-centeredness. The ant works not merely to provide for herself. She is providing for her extensive family as well. I found this interesting image online, if you'll put that next slide up. This is an expression of slothful sleep. I googled it and this is one of the things that came up. It's so cute. Too lazy to love. The cuteness of the picture, and you can buy t-shirts with this on it, as it turns out. The cuteness of this picture betrays the irony of our culture, once again, elevating the wrong values. Something that the scriptures treat as deadly serious. Laziness is treated in our culture, once again, as acute but acceptable flaw, if it's even considered a flaw at all. The sluggard isn't merely suffering the destruction of poverty. The sluggard isn't merely incapable of escaping from bad financial speculations. The sluggard fails to love others. And that is a breach of the greatest commandment. Well, what happens to the sluggard? Oftentimes, the sluggard snaps out of his laziness, but instead of replacing laziness with hard work, he is drawn into violent endeavors to get what he wants. The sluggard won't repent and turn toward hard work in order to get what he wants. Instead, he'll turn to more violent, seemingly easier means to satisfy his hunger. Thus, I see the slippery slope continuing on downward so that the sluggard may then deteriorate into the scoundrel of verses 12 to 15, the worthless, wicked man. Let's hear how Solomon describes this fellow. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. If we keep these verses connected with the previous two paragraphs, then Solomon is depicting a slippery slope, a pathway downward, how does a person become a worthless person or a wicked man? One way is to get entangled in a financial venture by promising to secure someone else's financial situation and then be too lazy or too proud to humble yourself and work to get out of it. After some time, the sluggard may devolve into this kind of person, worthless and wicked. These verses in Hebrew, as in the ESV, constitute a single sentence the basic sentence with just subject and verb and direct object goes like this. A worthless person, a wicked man, is sowing discord. The very beginning of the verse and the very end of the paragraph. All the phrases in between are descriptors elaborating on how such a person sows discord. Thus, as one student of Scripture observes, Solomon describes, describes such a person's essence worthless and wicked, his demeanor, walking around using his mouth, 
eyes, feet, and fingers to deceive and manipulate his inner life, a perverted heart, his effect upon society, he devises evil and sows discord continually, and finally his destiny, irreparable destruction. Simply put, such a person does not love his neighbor. Instead, such a person focuses on his own benefit at the expense of others and destroys his community. His essence or his identity is labeled as worthless and wicked. We know the term wicked, but let's consider the word translated worthless. It's a compound word combining a word meaning not or without and a word meaning useful or beneficial. One writer suggests good for nothing as an appropriate paraphrase. Worthless gets after the meaning pretty well. Commentator John Kitchen summarizes the 27 occurrences of this word in the Old Testament quite effectively. He writes, The word describes a person who has become so wicked and perverse that he is a liability to the community. Such a person tries to turn people from God, is sexually deviant, destructive in relationships, rebellious toward authority, and destructive with his lies. Bruce Waltke adds that such a person, quote, is implacably wicked and who agitates against all that is good. The term is used of troublemakers of all sorts, revolutionaries against God and his godly people, his anointed king, justice, community solidarity, social propriety, and even life itself. This devilish human in later Jewish literature and in the New Testament became explicitly a name for the devil, the chief of demons. The word is Belial, or Belial. You will see it in your English Bible in 2 Corinthians 6.15, I think it is. Such a person's demeanor is then described with reference to several body parts, all being employed for devious ends. His speech is, more literally, a reference to his mouth, and his mouth is described as being twisted or crooked. Think of Batman's Joker with his famously deranged smile. Such a person uses his words to twist reality, to call evil good and good evil. Furthermore, such a person uses his eye, foot, and fingers to communicate wickedly as well. Solomon seems to be describing the usage of gestures to communicate with evil accomplices. Such a person uses everything in his disposal to sow discord. The use of body parts to accomplish evil reminds me of the imagery Paul uses in Romans 6.13, where he commands us, and do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. The Christian Standard Bible has rightly captured the metaphor Paul is using. He envisions our body parts, including mouth, eyes, feet, and fingers, and everything else, as well as all of our mental capacities, our imagination, our ideas, our thoughts, our emotions. Paul commands us not to hand those things over to sin, personified as an evil queen. Don't hand your body parts, your resources, your faculties over to queen sin to use as weapons, because she will surely use them for evil ends. When Christians sin, that is exactly what we are doing. Queen sin is knocking on the door of our lives, demanding the use of our body parts, our resources to accomplish her evil purposes. She does this because before we became Christians, we did indeed belong to her, and she had her wicked way with us. 
But once God has made us alive in Christ through faith, we no longer belong to her. She no longer has the right to use our body parts. When we sin as Christians, we are committing terrible treason, willingly handing ourselves over to her again, acting as though we are still enslaved to her. But we have been set free from queen sin, from her domain, from her power, from her tyranny, and indeed from her doom. Solomon, in a parallel way, highlights the wickedness of using our God-given body parts for such nefarious purposes. Solomon then points to the inner life of such a worthless, wicked person. The heart is perverted, twisted, distorted. From that twisted heart, all these evil things flow out through the body parts. The word translated devises is literally plows. This is a metaphor. Instead of plowing a field, preparing it for a fruitful garden, this person plows evil from within the very core of their evil heart. This person has moved from the laziness of passively getting trampled by others to the aggression of actively devising schemes that bring poison and harm to others. When I was young, as a preteen in particular, I was often bullied for various reasons. At first I felt helpless and I passively took it. I learned to take a beating, both verbally and physically. But it didn't take long for me to stop silently lying down. Pretty soon I was not only standing up for myself, dishing out as much as I was taking, but I very quickly became the bully. To protect myself, I overcompensated with aggression, gained a reputation for being a scrapper that no one really wanted to mess with. I was reflecting my own evil, unredeemed heart. Praise God for His mercy and His grace. He brought me to Himself, granted me new life, a new heart, and began the work of changing my ugly, perverted heart. If He had not extended grace to me, I would rightfully face the judgment of verse 15. But before we take a look at the judgment, the main verb of the sentence needs attention at the end of verse 14. The worthless, wicked person sows discord. The ESV inexplicably follows the King James Version here with the verb sows, which gives the wrong impression that Solomon is using the metaphor of sowing. Other versions are better, using words like spreads or stirs up. The Hebrew word has to do with sending something away, or even better, unleashing something, turning something loose. Thus, this person unleashes strife and conflict everywhere in the community. This scoundrel is a troublemaker, a spreader of dissension and disunity. Sluggards can become scoundrels. Laziness in the study of Scripture can produce false teachers. And the New Testament repeatedly warns us to discipline and ultimately avoid those who stir up division by teaching things that don't fit with what the Scriptures say and with the Gospel. Dissensions and divisions are both listed as works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. False teachers sometimes appeal to experience in order to trump Scripture, who, which is often a cover for their own laziness in study. Paul instructs Titus in Titus 3, 9-11, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, 
have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. There's some interesting echoes of our passage here, don't you think? Jude also characterizes scoffers who cause divisions in the church as worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Like the worthless, wicked person described by Solomon, false teachers use their words and all manner of other communication techniques to deceive and destroy God's people, stirring up conflict, drawing people away from faithful churches preaching the true gospel. Proverbs 6.15 warns that such a person will face sudden destruction. In the following verses, it will become clear that the agent of this calamity, the one who breaks the worthless, wicked person beyond healing, is Yahweh himself. The slippery slope of slothful sleep drops out into the pit of hell. Early on, there is opportunity to extricate oneself, to escape, to jump off the slide. The person caught in an unwise financial entanglement can indeed beg himself free. The sluggard can indeed get out of bed, go to ant school, and then get to work. But the scoundrel who gives free reign to his perverted heart and seeks to unleash strife among others has crossed the line to his inevitable doom. As with the wicked fool from chapter 4, such a person won't see it coming. Thus, finally, Solomon presents the famous seven abominations to the Lord. Verses 16 to 19 present a numerical sequence proverb, what one writer calls a numerical ladder, a common ancient literary device indicating that the items on the list are not intended to be exhaustive. And there's usually an emphasis placed on the final item. As we read through these, notice the parallels with the previous passage. The first five items will highlight body parts, parallel to the body parts mentioned already. And then the last two types of people listed are certainly reflected in the previous paragraph as well. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The seven items are shaped in a chiastic structure. If you'll put the next slide on the screen, you can see how it V's into the midpoint. Chiastic structures, as we've talked about before, are common in Scripture, and they tend to present parallel items that gravitate around a center point. Thus here, notice how Solomon has crafted these seven items so that item number four, which is the midpoint, refers to the heart. Notice also that this heart does the same thing we saw the heart doing back in verse 14. It's devising, or more literally, plowing. So while these seven things are particular sins that Yahweh hates, that disgust him deeply, make him want to vomit, They are framed in such a way that these are the sins of a particular person, the worthless, wicked scoundrel from the previous verses. We've looked at God's hatred of sinners in the past, and we don't need to rehash all that this morning. The main point to see here is that this poetic portrayal of seven abominations explain the reason that the worthless, wicked man comes to sudden ruin. He sits under God's wrathful hatred 
because of his perverted heart that bleeds out into sins that destroy the people around him. One Bible dictionary reflects on God's hatred this way. God is opposed to, separates himself from, and brings the consequences of his hatred upon people, not as mere people, but as sinful people. That is what is being depicted here. All mainstream Bible translations paraphrase something that in the second line of verse 16 that softens the meaning just a bit, but many translations point to the more literal rendering in a footnote. The second line is to be literally translated, seven that are an abomination to his soul. Thus Solomon describes how this hatred, this disgust, flows out of the deepest core of God's being. One writer has characterized these seven things as an anatomy of evil, so that what is so disgusting to God is how sinful people use their body parts to accomplish such destructive, wicked ends. I am reminded of Jesus' stark instructions, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better, better to enter eternal, resurrected life missing a hand or missing an eye than to keep your whole body intact, keep giving in to its sinful impulses, and have God in pure, holy wrath throw your whole resurrected body into hell for eternal punishment. The challenge for us this morning is that as we read through these seven things, we're going to see some things that we've been guilty of. First, Solomon mentions haughty eyes. More literally, this is uplifted eyes. Of course, this depicts pride, but get the imagery. It's the image of turning our eyes away from ourselves, refusing to be self-critical, refusing to examine oneself for the possibility of error, Also, it's the picture of lifting up one's eyes above everybody else, looking down on other people. In our English idiom, we might say we turn up our nose towards someone. It's the sin of elevating ourselves above others and refusing to face our own flaws. It's interesting how often those two are packaged deal. We often express this with our words or even our tone of voice. Condescension patronizing, speaking in a way that seeks to show how much smarter, how much better I am than someone else. Sick. God hates our pride. He is sickened by it, and he will not tolerate it forever. Second, Solomon speaks of a lying tongue. The God of truth hates deception, and he hates deceivers. Third, Solomon speaks of hands that shed innocent blood. Commentator Dwayne Garrett is surely correct when he writes, the phrase, hands that shed innocent blood, describes the violent personality, and as such is one who would be prone to murder if circumstances were conducive. A lack of control over anger is implied, as is a profound lack of regard for the value of human life. This is the personality that will beat or even kill another person out of anger over a presumed insult. God hates violence and he hates the violent. He is sickened by it, and he will not tolerate it forever. Fourth, 
at the center. Solomon speaks of the heart that plows wicked plans. This reflects God's comment prior to the great flood recorded in Genesis 6-5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's another comment in Genesis 8 after the flood that shows that that heart remains in humanity. Garrett, again, describes well what plowing wicked plans in the heart looks like. He writes, Such a person has no regard for anything but that which might work to his or her advantage. Rules and values are used when it is beneficial to do so, but they are disregarded when they are inconvenient. Such a one is always looking for an edge over everyone else. God hates such a heart. God hates people who scheme to hurt others. Such hearts sicken his heart, and he will not tolerate it forever. Fifth, Solomon speaks of feet that make haste to run to evil. The Hebrew has some good alliteration that actually can be reproduced well in English. Feet that rush, racing to wrong. Sinners are depicted as sparing no expense, wasting no time, leaving no bases uncovered in executing their wicked plans. There is an orientation, a dedication toward evil, sin that harms other people, and God hates it. He is sickened by it, and he will not tolerate it forever. Sixth, Solomon speaks of a false witness who breathes out lies. Such a person deceives as naturally as he breathes. The phrase congenital liar has been used. When I was a kid, this described me. I was a liar a deceiver, a manipulator as a child. I got to the point where I believed my own lies and no longer knew what the truth was about certain things. To this day, there are things that I lied about that I'm not sure what the truth of the matter really is. I believed my own lies, and that happens oftentimes. The deceived and the deceiver becomes the self-deceived. And God hated me because of it. My portion, what I deserve is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death, according to Revelation 21.8. How grateful am I that the Lord can turn a liar into a lover of the truth. How grateful am I that while God was disgusted by my lies, while God hated me, the liar, he also loved me and sent his son to die for me. While I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. Seventh, finally, climactically, he draws in the phrase from verse 14, but he expands and intensifies it. God hates and is sickened by the one who sows discord or unleashes strife among brothers. While the Bible contains many stories of literal brothers who experience strife between them, the term is much broader, Solomon is depicting the travesty of disunity between those who are to be the most unified. This is why Paul is so aggressive in opposing those who would stir up dissension and division in the church. We are all siblings together. And for someone in the church, someone claiming the name of brother or sister, someone claiming the name of Christian, to be actively stirring up conflict, picking fights, getting easily aggravated and refusing to forgive others in the church... 
This kind of behavior Solomon and Paul condemn most strongly. Ultimately, all of the other six things God hates here contribute to the last one. Arrogance, deception, violence, scheming, evil, and false testimony are all all result in driving the people closest to us away. Ultimately, Solomon's warning for his son is to avoid getting on the slippery slope of slothful sleep. If he finds himself looking down that slope from the top, trapped in some kind of financial trouble because of his own carelessness or negligence or foolishness, then he needs to get out of bed. No, don't even get in bed to go to sleep and get out of that arrangement. The longer he puts it off, the more likely it is that he will slide on down the slippery slope. But in the grand scheme of things, we know that the only one who can save us from our sin is Jesus, our Savior. He got entangled in the worst bad deal imaginable. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The eternal Son of God laid aside his unsearchable riches voluntarily, impoverished himself in so many ways, humbled himself even to the point of a shameful death on a cross, betrayed by a friend in another financially foolish deal, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. All of this as an act of service for sinners like you and like me. Thus, in our place, he himself slid down the slippery slope. Though he wasn't guilty of slothfulness or of sin of any kind, he slid down all the way into the sleep of death and the pit of destruction. He died the death of fools. He died the death of condemned criminals so that through the folly of the cross, the foolishness of proclaiming a gospel of crucifixion, God would save those who believe. The foolishness of God is Christ crucified. And Christ crucified is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And He is the wisdom of God in the flesh. What's left to say? Paul's words in Romans 11.33 will do for now. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise You for Your greatness. We thank You for Your mercy. We see the way that you are postured toward our sin. You hate our sin. And you hate sinners. And at the same time, your infinite love is expressed in the death of your Son. And so we revel in that reality. The tension that it is, we live in it. We dare not let go of either end. Your hatred of sin guarantees that justice will be served. That all sin will be punished appropriately and equally. And what great news that is. What great news that is for those of us who have suffered at the hands of other people's sin. And we revel and rejoice in your great glory being on display in both judgment and salvation. That you made a way to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we pray that you would give that faith Equip us to believe. Help us to believe. 
Thank you for your saving power. The death of Christ was not in vain. It actually accomplished your work. When Jesus said it is finished, we say amen. And we thank you that there's no more work to be done to save sinners such as us. Help us to live it out. Help us to fight the temptation toward laziness in our own lives. We can be easily distracted in this world. We can be easily pulled down into not wanting to get up and do what is necessary. Do what you've called us to do. Help us to fight that. By your Spirit, equip us to be about the work that you've called us to. Thank you that you have prepared good works for us. Now enable us to walk in them as you promise you will. Thank you for your grace that secures us moment by moment and forever. Help us to look forward with hope because of the gospel and because of what Jesus has done to save us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.